All right. Well, we are taking a break from our series in Philippians for the next six weeks to explore exactly what it means to follow. Now, as I said last week, we want to be followers of Jesus that make followers of Jesus. And at our essence, pared down to our roots, that is who we need to be. A people of God, changed by Jesus, chasing after him with everything that we are and everything that we have. We need to become followers of Jesus that make followers of Jesus. And the only way that we can truly be that is by learning and leaning into what it means to truly follow. Someone told me this week as I was like explaining what following Jesus is, like becoming a follower of Jesus, he was like, you know, it sounds a lot like what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And that is completely 100% true. To be a follower of Jesus is to be a disciple of Jesus. And yet, sometimes, discipleship is a scary word to us. And it can carry all kinds of connotations that bog down and confuse and, and make Christianity way more complicated than it really is. Do I have an accountability structure? Am I reading my Bible enough? Did I do my daily quiet time? Did I get up early enough to do my quiet time? Do I have a mentor? Do I have the right mentor? Am I learning what I'm supposed to be learning? Am I sitting less? Am I doing more? Now, these aren't bad questions to ask, but, but often if we are asking these questions and only these questions, then we are missing the main question. And that is, am I following Jesus with everything that I am and everything that I have? So what we're doing here with this series is, is we're just striving to cut back the branches and the excess to get to the root of what it means to follow Jesus. And in doing so, discovering in addition what is holding us back from following him completely and experiencing him fully. So for the next six weeks, we are going to walk through six verbs, six action steps that express this idea of following our Father. And remember, so much of our willingness to actually follow in the first place stems from our identity as children of God. If you have surrendered your life to Christ, you have been adopted as sons and daughters of God. You have a father who loves you. You have a father who leads you. You have a father who has given you life. Your identity is found completely in relationship to him. And so our response to his leading then becomes naturally to follow him when he leads. So here are those six verbs that... that express how we follow. The first is to believe. Can you believe that God is exactly who he says he is? And then, and then we repent. 
Is anything too broken in you that God cannot heal? And then we follow. And when we follow, we're asking the question, are you, are you truly willing to go with Jesus wherever he leads you? As we follow, when we, 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 we practice remaining. And we're asking the question, when you become discouraged, will you stay with him? And then we share. And when we share, again, we're asking the question, are you an individual? Are you going about this journey by yourself, or do you belong to a family? Is this a community-driven thing? And finally, we multiply. And multiply and ask the question, will you lay down your life so that another can live? Now, this morning, we are going to explore following by first believing. Now, what does it mean to believe? The reality is that God is revealing himself to you every single day, who he is and why you should follow him. The Bible itself is this story with a beginning and a middle and then an end. And that end is really just another beginning. It's a new life, a new world. There's a main character in this story, and guess what? It's not you. It's not even human beings. And we know this because in any good story, the main character never dies. Why? Well, if the main character dies, then the story dies. Adam and Eve die. Abraham dies. Moses dies. Paul dies. Israel dies. Paul dies. And what this should tell us is that humans, as important as we think we are to the story, we are mere supporting actors in the main story of who God is and what God does. The foundation of our faith does not begin with what we think of the world, but what God thinks of it. And yet, at some point or another, each one of us has stopped believing the main character in the story and has started treating the main story as our own. And so the root cause of our sin and our suffering, our failure, is that we stop believing what God says, who God is and how much God cares. And so throughout the Bible, God keeps revealing himself and calling out to his creation to do one thing, to believe him. Not to believe ourselves, not to believe our hearts, not to believe others, but to believe God's words, that he is who he says he is. Now, the problem is, it's not just his voice that you hear. There are these other voices, other influencers that are crowding your mind for attention, trying to stir up your emotions and your desires and your impulses, trying to pull your focus away from the God of the universe who is speaking so powerfully to you. 
So we're going to spend uh, the bulk of our time this morning in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. And, and as we do, there are three distinct voices that you are going to hear. And these voices are competing for your attention. And out of that competition, this one question arises out of the din, out of the chaos. And the question is, how do you know which one to believe? And to whom are you going ultimately to listen? So voice number one, this is the voice of God. Now, the most consistent characteristic in the creation of the world is that God speaks. We talked about this a few months back when we read through this same passage. God's words have a powerful, creative force behind them. So when God speaks, things happen. But there's something that we need to see in this text. God is not just speaking the world into motion. He is declaring it. He is declaring it. And this leads to one of the great mysteries of God that obligates us to believe in him. God is a God of declaration more than he is a God of explanation. That doesn't mean that God never explains himself. And instead, it means that God does not have to explain himself. And you can miss the gospel, the good news of God, if you are just waiting for an explanation. Here's what I mean by this. When we're talking about belief, and when I say belief, I'm also meaning faith and I'm meaning trust. This is the same word here. The first thing that we need to believe is that God's word is enough. Faith means taking God at his word. I don't need to fully understand it. And if it turns out that I do need to understand it, then it ceases to be faith for me. If I need to understand, if I need, if I require an explanation from God, then God's word is not enough for me. And my faith is not in God. It's in my mind. It's in my logic. It's in my ability to comprehend something. My faith is not in God. It's in me. There is a problem with my faith if I have to put God on the stand in order for him to explain himself before I pronounce judgment. Whether I believe him or not, whether I should indeed divest my interests and my holdings into his care. It reveals something ultimately about my relationship with him. And it says that I don't, if I have to put God to the test to explain himself to me, I don't really believe that he is who he says he is or that he cares about me as much as he says he does. As a parent of young children, 
First, young children are a godsend to any pastor because there are about 10,000 illustrations that I can have. It's really not, I didn't birth them for the illustrations. That's just a, a byproduct bonus of the whole thing. But as a parent of young children, do you know what the single most infuriating word in the entire English language is? Also, no. But why? Why? Why is never ending with kids? If my kids need or want or desire something, here's how it goes. They come and they ask me for something or they ask me about something. And I, as a parent, answer them. Yes, no, maybe. Sky is blue because the, the, the atmosphere, pressure in the air and all that. I, I'm explaining to Yes, this is how it goes. And they say, why? They don't buy my first answer. That wasn't, it's not good enough. They need next answer, the answer after that. And if the answer isn't the one they want, and at some point I just go, you just have to trust me. You just have to trust that my answer to you is what it is. And of course the response is, why? It's, it's infuriating. Just going to ignore that. So, yes, their response is why. They're saying, they're saying to me when they say why. They're saying, why should I believe you? Why should I trust you? Why can't I make my own decisions or trust my own impulses? And of course, as soon as I declare that trust is going to be necessary for something, that one word, why, completely undermines that declaration of the need for trust. Once I am forced to explain myself to my kids, the source of faith and trust is transferred from parent to child. Now again, I'm not talking about a blind faith here. I'm not talking about blind faith I just go, I'm not looking where I'm going, I'm just doing it. Because as a father, for example, I need to be clear to my kids. I need to teach them. It's kind of my job. And there are moments when a good explanation can really help them. It brings them along, it helps them to understand, it's growing them into future parents of infuriating children. I'm multiplying this. That's my goal. (laughs) But there are times when my declaration to them needs to be sufficient. If my kids start running toward a busy intersection and I yell, stop, don't go out into the street. I need them to listen to me and trust that I am looking out for their best interests. There is no time for me to explain. Stop. Don't go out into the street. Because if you go out there, you'll get hit by a car and die. 
Because force equals mass times acceleration, which means that a 2,000-pound car that's moving at a rate of 40 miles an hour, upon impact, is going to create a few hundred pounds of force. And that might not kill a larger human, but you're small, which means that it's not going to work out for you. You're probably not going to survive, and I care about you, and I don't want you to die, so please stop right where you are. I don't have time to do that. My kids will miss the good message that I have for them if they wait for the explanation before they decide to believe and follow. To trust me, to take me at my word, can be the difference between life and death. God is not calling you to a completely blind faith in him. The Bible is clear, and the call to listen and believe is not without a grounds for belief. And in fact, even the Gospel of John, he notes that the works and the words of Jesus were actually done to explain the Father. So that we would hear and see and understand and love him. But when you do under struggle, when you do struggle to understand his words, that is the moment, the greatest moment when you are being called to surrender to him. At the point where you don't understand, that may just be the greatest call to surrender. Every good gift that the Father gives comes through faith and trust in him. Romans chapter 3, verse 22, we receive righteousness through faith. Galatians 2, verse 16, we are justified through faith. Romans 11, verse 20, we stand fast through faith. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26, we are sons of God through faith. Ephesians 3, verse 17, we are indwelled by Christ through faith. Colossians 2, verse 12, we are raised with Christ through faith. Hebrews 6, verse 12, we inherit God's promises through faith. And 1 Peter 1, 5, we are guarded through faith. Every good gift flows from the gospel and is received through faith. You will miss out on the blessings of God, his protection, his favor, his strength, his power. If the source of your belief, if the source of your trust if the source of your faith is in you. God declares a good truth, and he asks you to trust him. He asks you to believe. So God is speaking. And he brings... He brings Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, he brings them to this paradise, this garden. 
And God declares to them, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for you will die. That's it. That's all he says. Follow these instructions, and you're going to be safe, and, you're going to be, and we're going to be good. Relationship with you and I, good. Father and children, good. But there are other voices in this story. There are other voices in this story. This other voice then shows up in chapter 3. He's called the serpent. He's called the serpent. And this serpent, he speaks, but he doesn't speak like God speaks. What does he say? The serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, he speaks, but he doesn't declare something. He asks a question. Did God really say, you can't eat from the tree in the garden? The woman says, well, we can eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit in the tree of the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows, this is a serpent speaking, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's all he has to say. That's all he has to say. The serpent questions God. The voice of the serpent questions our belief in God. The serpent puts God on the stand. And he plants a seed in the woman's heart that maybe, I mean, just maybe, God isn't who he says he is. Maybe he's not a loving father. Maybe he doesn't truly care about me. Maybe I'm not safe when I'm with him. The voice of the serpent is the voice of fear. God knows you will, like him, you will be like him when you eat the fruit, and that's why he is not going to let you eat it. He's jealous. He's not good. He's greedy. He's power hungry. He's evil. The explanation for God's declaration, notice that. Who is it provided by? Who provides the explanation for God's declaration? The serpent. Not God. The serpent. The serpent tries to fill in the blanks. There are many voices that are speaking to you every single day that are pushing you to believe only in yourself, only in your achievements, only in your political parties, only in your sexual fulfillment, only in the affection of others. And fear starts to creep in. 
Fear leads to unbelief. Fear leads to unbelief. And this fear can look different in all kinds of different ways. There's a fear of falling behind, which causes you to cut corners so that you can get ahead. A fear of losing control or not getting the outcome that you're hoping for will cause you to manipulate others. A fear of maybe not being fulfilled will cause you to look for satisfaction for yourself in achievements, in approval, in substance, in relationships. Fear of not being loved or welcomed or included will cause you to become a slave to the opinions of others. Fear of failure or judgment will cause you to prove your value through good works or righteous things. Otherwise, it will cause you to fall into despair and doubt and self-destruction. Do not believe that Satan's goal is to get you to follow him. That is not Satan's objective. It is not the choice of Satan or God. The choice is, do you believe God or do you not believe God? I don't think Satan actually cares whether you are explicitly following him. I think he only cares that you're not following God. The choice is not whether to believe him or God. The choice is to believe God or to not believe God. And Satan's only objective is to provoke unbelief in the good father. Beware of the voice of the serpent that questions a good father. Finally, there's one more voice in this, and that voice is the self. This woman hears one more voice. It's not an audible voice. It's a silent voice. It's inside. It's in her own thoughts. It's in her own desires. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Eve starts thinking, the tree is obviously here to nourish me. It will make me wise. Why wouldn't I want to take it? Maybe God made me this way, to desire this fruit, to desire earthly wisdom. My mind wants it. My 
My body craves it. It's only natural that I would have it. Why would God put it right in the middle? Why didn't God put it out on the edges of the, of the garden where I could, it would not be distracted? He put it right here for me. Clearly. And he gave me these impulses that are pulling me towards it. So clearly, that must be okay. This is fine. This is actually what God wants. Let's go for it. How often do we justify our own failure to believe? How often do we justify it? In my own sin, confession time, I have spent hours dwelling on it. Turning my sins over and over again. And what I tend to do then is, as I'm, as I'm looking at it and I'm examining it and I'm agonizing over my actions, whether what I have done, what I want to do, what I may do, and what I start doing is I start shaving off the, the bad parts in my mind. This isn't really my fault. It's genetics. This, 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 this is, this is maybe disappointment, but I can, I can bear a little bit, or I can, I can hide it, I can cover it, it's fine. This part, this isn't really like, that's not really sin. It's, it doesn't really count. It's, it's a 50% on the meter. That's not 100, so it's okay. I can rationalize that part away. I just start cutting bits and pieces out until what's left is not so heinous anymore. It's not so terrible. It's not so egregious of an offense to God. It's sort of a tame, insignificant Minor sin. And in that moment, my unbelief in God takes root. And I stop following my father. Does this sound familiar to you? Have you experienced this in your life? But how much of that is my explanation my justification, my rationalization, my deflection. How many times have I sought after a scapegoat like Adam and Eve did? This woman you gave me, that serpent over there. Or expressed fear and doubt that God really is who he says he is. We saw that we were naked and we were afraid, so we hid. I can say that I believe God, but my actions, my thoughts, my true response to who I think God actually is reveals something else. When Eve takes the fruit, who does she believe in that moment? We actually don't know. We don't know if she's believing the lies of the serpent. We don't know if she's believing the lie she's telling herself. 
But we know one thing. She is not believing God. You can say that you believe God. Do your actions back it up? If I say that I trust my wife, I trust you, honey. I trust you completely, 100%. And yet, I scour her emails and her text messages, the mail that comes in, tap phone lines, put video surveillance on her, hire private investigators. I said I trust you. Do my actions back it up? Do I really trust her? Most people would say, no. You, no, you don't trust her. Not until maybe I've checked every single box and I say, okay, but what is that? That's still not trust. That's paranoia. That is distrust in my wife. My actions do not support my declaration of trust and belief. It can be sometimes where we end up believing a wholly different God than the one who is calling us out to follow him. It's one thing to say we believe. It's another thing to show that we believe. In your life right now, there are three voices that are calling out to you. God says, believe me, trust me, follow me. Other people who are adversaries to God are saying, are you sure you can believe God? Are you sure that he is who he says? Are you even sure that there is a God? And if there is, why would he care about you? Is he not just looking out for himself? And then there is that still small voice that's inside of you, not God's still small voice, but your own, that is saying, my impulses, my desires, my wants, my flesh, is saying, I'm not ready to believe yet. You haven't proven to me that I should stop. You haven't convinced me. I'm not ready to believe. I'm afraid of what would happen if I do this and then you, I'm, I'm, not, I'm afraid of what would happen if I don't do this. I'm worried about this or that. Why should I even trust you? How do you know which ones to believe? My original question. Whose voice will you listen to? Belief and trust mean re-centering, reaffirming your life, re-centering it not around you, not around who you are, not with you as the center, but with God as the center, with who God is. When we make it about us, when we are the center of the issues, fear, disbelief, uncertainty, 
creep in. When God is at the center, the fear falls away, disbelief fades, trust restored. Who is this God? Why is he worthy to be at the center of your life? Who does God say that he is? Think of these four things. God is good. God is good. He will meet your needs. He will take care of you. He will watch out for you. He will be your refuge. You don't need to look elsewhere for satisfaction. You don't need to look elsewhere for fulfillment. God will meet your needs. He will provide for you. He is there for you. God is good. He is also great. The first one I think was great. God is great. God is a powerful God. This is the God creator of the universe who knows your name, who knows your thoughts, who knows your needs, who knows your struggles, who knows your pain. And he is able to provide and take care and change your life. He is that powerful. He is that awe-inspiring. He is that great of a God. You do not need to be in control of your life because there is one who is far greater than you, who is able to take control, who will not screw it up, who will save your life. He is that great. God is also glorious. God is also glorious. God's Look, God's role in this world, we will bring glory to him. Everything on this earth declares how amazing, incredible, worthy of praise and worship and honor that God is. There is not a single human being where it says every knee should bow and every tongue would confess that they are the Lord. There is no human being who is worth that honor, that distinction, only God is worth that distinction. He is glorious. So you do not need to fear other people. You do not need to have to be worried about your own um, influence or reputation. God's got it covered. Our reputation means nothing in the sight of a glorious God. And finally, God is gracious. He is gracious. You do not need to prove yourself to God. Whereas the world says, I have to prove myself over and over and over again. You do not need to prove yourself to God. When I think about Mercy and grace. Mercy is this amazing thing where you are not punished for the sins that you have been, that you have committed. And that is an amazing thing. And we should never take that for granted. But there is something, there is something special about grace. It's not that when God looks at me, he says, I should punish you, but I won't. 
God looks at you and he smiles at you. And he comforts you. And he brings you in. That's grace. Grace is giving you a gift when he looks and smiles and he says, I am pleased with you. And you haven't done anything to deserve that. There is something that overcomes within me. I do not need to prove myself to God. There is something incredibly overwhelming to think about that. I do not need to prove myself to him. If we can believe that God is who he says he is, that he is great, that he is good, that he is glorious, and that he is gracious, if that becomes the center of our life, the other things that we uphold to support ourselves and to make ourselves matter no longer matter because God matters. Do you believe that? Are you ready to trust him 100%? When you hear his voice declaring who he is to you. Will you believe that God is who he says he is? Let's pray. Father, that is the name that keeps coming up in my head every time that I think of you right now. There are many names for who you are. Provider, Refuge, strength, support, protector, deliverer. But Father is the one that keeps coming back. May we learn to trust you. Help us, God. that man who had a dying child confess to Jesus help my unbelief help me when I am afraid when I start to question you when I start to rationalize and explain away a life that is not meant with you in the center. Help my unbelief. Help me to trust that you are who you say you are. To walk with you. To stop when you yell stop. Go where you lead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.